want to add my welcome to you all this morning. Um, for those of you that I have not met, but I've been meeting new people today, my name is Greg Durenberger. I'm the senior pastor of Mass Road Church, one of the elders here, and we are honored that you would be with us. And thank you to Ryan for um, praying for me. I, I think it's, you know, when we, I'm going to be gone this week, and that's not to kind of pompous about that, like I get to travel or something like that. I just think it's important that your elders are transparent with you about how we use our time. And um, one of my extra local responsibilities has to do with the National Church Planting Group of Sovereign Grace Churches. And this week we will be uh, in Phoenix. I think their their nighttime lows are going to be close to our daytime highs, so (laughs) don't be... (laughs) Too envious of that, but um, yeah, we're, we're, we're providing training for international church planting coaches, and then we'll have a national church planting group retreat, so I, I will be back next Sunday morning, but I will not be around this weekend, um, that's why. I do want to invite you to turn now uh, to 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy, and we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> pastor friend of mine uh, retired recently, and um, given where I'm at at this stage in my life, I, I, I've been watching his transition with interest, and um, it, it, at the same time that he stepped away from full-time pastoral ministry, he and his wife also moved into a different house, and one of the renovations that he made um, was to transform the old attic um, in their new residence into a study library. And what stirred my particular interest was a picture that he had posted online of this remodeled attic-slash-office library and, and a small area that was set aside with a kneeling bench. And his comment uh, that said, from here... I look forward to changing the world. That may sound a bit audacious. Um, Namely, that an individual, one individual, on his knees, imploring the king of the cosmos, might actually alter the course of history. And yet, that, I believe, is the claim of this next portion of Paul's letter to Timothy. Um, I, I tremble at God's, what God's word can accomplish, but I've been praying that our Heavenly Father might take this particular text of Scripture that he inspired the Apostle Paul to write and cause it to work in us, to get something done in us in such a way that, that he might unleash a movement of prayer that would change the world. And it's with that humble yet audacious aspiration in view that I would invite you to follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And uh, and if you're physically able, I want to invite you to stand. This is just as an expression of honoring, regarding, respecting God's holy and authoritative word. Please follow along. 
First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. Join me as I pray. And so we do look to you, Father in heaven. You have, you have communicated yourself through the text of Scripture. That is an awesome thing. And we ask, O oh Lord, that for the sake of your praise and your honor and esteem for you and yieldedness to you in all the earth, among all the peoples of the earth, would you bring the power of your Spirit to bear upon our hearing and receiving, and obeying, and trusting, and knowing you in every way, through our Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul leaves no doubt as to his main concern. First of all, point number one. Before anything else of highest importance, then, then also translated therefore, and, and we all know what we are supposed to do when we see the word therefore, right? What do we do? We see what it's there for, right? So it's, it's a, therefore is a word we use when we're coming to a conclusion. It's a very important word. So first of all, then, therefore, I urge, not a suggestion, to urge means it's urgent, requires immediate attention. Do this now. So right there, you got three signals that Paul's real serious. He means business. First of all, then I urge. What is he urging? What's so important? I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. 
See that? Paul, Paul uses not one, not two, not three, but four different words, yet all synonymous to press home the imperative. So imagine you're Timothy, and you're taking in this letter from the man who, you know, he's been like a father to you, a mentor, someone who's left this indelible mark in your life, and, and he reads, okay, first off, first off, you know, there's, there's trouble in the church. Folks are picking up and buying into doctrine that's just, it's diminishing the truth. It's diminishing the significance of the, of the cross. There are people that you know that are swerving off the rails, swerving from trusting all that God has promised to be for them in Christ. Some of them have, have drifted so far off course that they've made a shipwreck of their faith. you got a fire down there in Ephesus, Tim. Timmy, Timmer, Timmeru. If you were here last week, you know what I'm getting at. You, you, you can't let this go on. Now get on it. And so on account of all that, it's really attention getting, at least it is to me, that of all the urgent admonitions that Paul might have made, like, you know, he, he could have said, well, now, now, there's folks there that need a talking to. Or, or maybe you should preach a sermon series and address some of these things. Like, you know, you could call it something like Ephesians. Or, or, or it might be time for some even stronger action. You know, like maybe an excommunication or two. But no. Paul says, first of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Pray. And make some intercessions. And, and supplications would be good too. And did I mention pray? In other words, Paul's not simply calling for prayer. He is emphatically commanding extraordinary prayer, devotional prayer, intercessory prayer, groaning, pleading, prayers of praise, prayers of thanksgiving, all kinds of prayers. Why? To what end? And here is where I believe we come to the claim of this text on us. By extraordinary prayer, the church enjoys the fruits of Christ's victory on the cross and God's glory displayed. By extraordinary prayer, extraordinary prayer, not just a little prayer or some prayer, but extraordinary prayer, the church enjoys the fruits of Christ's victory on the cross and God's glory Put on display. In other words, if, if Christ preached is the front line of gospel advance, then Christians praying together, praying together, form the supply line. Proclaiming, defending gospel doctrines where the bullets are flying, extraordinary corporate prayer is the conduit for the power supply. Not everybody's deployed to the front. 
but everyone is urged to pray. I've already hinted at it. There's an old saying I, I first heard back in the early years of my pastoral ministry. Little prayer, little power. Some prayer, some power. Much prayer, much power. When, when Christians are engaged together in extraordinary prayer, then the church enjoys the fruits of Christ's victory on the cross and God's glory is put on display. Now, what does that look like? And Paul surprises me here. I would have expected him to, to go in a, a bit of a different direction in chapter 2, verses 1 and following. I, I would have expected him to say something like, all right, so, so first of all, in light of the troubling issues on the home front, the troubling issues going on back in, in that local church, I, I'm urging that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, all that be made for all people, but especially, especially pray for those false teachers. You've got to get that straightened out. The people that are introducing false doctrine. And, and perhaps pray even more urgently for those that are, that are heading towards these rocky reefs of apostasy. Oh, pray your socks off for, the, for them. And, and, for, and for those knuckleheads who, who want to turn every Gentile into a Jew and, 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 and then get, your, get on your knees and lift up holy hands to heaven for those undisciplined children that are taking swings at their parents. And don't forget to cry out to God for those lawbreakers and those liars and the sex traffickers and sinners and everybody who's clogging up the justice system, right? Isn't that what you'd expect them to pray? In light of chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, there's your comprehensive list of, of the ones we would expect we ought to be praying for. But Paul, remarkably, he doesn't go down that list. Instead, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, which certainly would include all those troublemakers in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. But then Paul highlights praying for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, I, I instinctively tend to think of the front lines of gospel advance as you know, the, the places where it's the darkest and, and where the, the, really, the really sinful people are. But Paul urges us to direct the focus of extraordinary prayer on behalf of those in roles and positions of governance. Pray for all people. Pray for kings because they're at the top of the governance pyramid. And then pray for everybody right on down the line. Pray for all of those who wield authority, assert governance over lots of people. Pray for those who wield authority and assert governance over a few people. Pray for those who assert governance over schools, churches. He's going to land there big time. Pray for those who assert governance over households, families. And, and listen, pray for those 
who govern themselves. Are there any other categories of positional authority? Pray for them. Pray for them all. Make the matter of governance the real focus. Engage with God earnestly with regard to the manner by which each and every person asserts governance. Why? Why is governance the category to which Paul directs us to the most urgent and saturating measure of prayer? I believe it's because governance is, well, it's the theme of this whole letter, but it is the practical concern and the outworking of the economy of God. The economy of God has to do with the governance of God over the household of God. And so you see, if, if the economy of God is to be expressed, if it is to be made visible in the cosmos, it's through governance. Both in the way we are governed, we receive governance, and in the way we assert governance, assert our positional authority. This is what is of paramount importance. And therefore, governance is a most urgent matter for soaking, soaking, soaking prayer. Look at verse 3. This is good. What's this? And it is pleasing in the sight of God. What's it? What, what, what is this that, and it that is pleasing in God's sight? This and it refer back to all these words about prayer. Prayer is good. Prayer is pleasing to God. Because he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. None of us probably would push back much on the notion of whether or not prayer is good and pleasing to God. But, but in what way does prayer, extraordinary prayer, relate to governance and positional authority? And in, in, in what sense does governance and the economy of God relate to the gospel? Well, here, here, here's how I think they go together. God honoring governance flows from a restored relationship with God under His terms of positional authority. That, that, that's a kind of a complicated sentence. So let me just say it again and think about it because I think this is, this is what Paul's getting after. God-honoring governance, it flows from a restored relationship with God under His terms of positional authority. 
God's cosmic, global, eternal purpose is to assert his rule and his reign as king over the people that he's created. And and the glorious wisdom of God's economy is, is revealed for all the world to see when his people entrust themselves joyfully to his authority and his governance over their lives. When God's people rely on Him, entrusting themselves to His power, to His wisdom, to His care, to His will, to His providence in and over everything, then He is rightly honored and their souls are satisfied with comfort and joy. And all is right in the cosmos. But, as we know firsthand, the people of God created to live in this sweet goodness of all that God is for them would have none of that. No. No. We're going to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. In a thousand ways. Every one of us has sinned and declared, God is not going to have ultimate authority over my life. I'll decide. And all have fallen short of treasuring and trusting His wise, good economy. And the result is a broken, self-ruled life. And a rebellious, broken, self-governed life without God's wisdom, without God's power, without God's care is an anxious life. We know right away that we can't control everything. There's just a whole lot of things that, that we wish would go the way we want them to, but we know that we don't have ultimate positional authority, and sovereignty to make them go the way we want them to go. And so, life without God's wisdom, God's power, God's care, God's governance is an anxious life, a fearful life, a conflicted, controlling life. And the ransom price required for this just unfathomable rebellion, just, it's just inconceivable. The ransom price for this against God's blessed governance is, first of all, death. And second of all, eternal punishment. First comes death, then comes judgment forever. But the mind-boggling good news is that the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, for the sake of his own pleasure in displaying the glory of his own mercy, and for the sake of his eternal praise, and the eternal peace and pleasure of his people, he put forward a plan to redeem the cosmos. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, 
And that would be the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself willingly as a ransom for all. Loved ones, listen. The the saving effect of Jesus' perfect life as a man and his ransom-paying death on the cross is real reconciliation between God and all. That is, anyone who repents and entrusts themselves to his terms of mediation. On the cross, the peacemaking work has been done. There's no other way. There is no other ransom that will suffice. There is no other atonement that is sufficient for all. There's no other gospel. And loved ones, listen, this is so crucial. When we have peace with God on His terms, when we are trusting Him to fulfill His terms in Christ Jesus, when we are trusting our Heavenly Father to fulfill every promise He has made to us, for us, because we are joined by faith to Jesus Christ, then the foundation is established for a peaceful, quiet life. Those words are also translated tranquility. And calm. It's the foundation for tranquility and calmness of soul. But that's not all. There's also this power supply of the risen and reigning Christ at work in us to bear the fruit of godly and dignified character. And listen, when the peace of God in Christ is ruling in and reigning over and asserting governance in our hearts, then we are able to govern ourselves wisely and rightly. In Christ, we can govern our actions. In Christ, we can govern our emotional responses. In Christ, we have the power that produces godliness and dignity. That word dignity, by the way, which we probably understand is, you know, it's just this high sense of honor, propriety. It also refers to a hatred for sin. But the word dignity, historically, has always related to governance. Governing. Wisely, honorably, rightly. So you see, whether it's self-governance, or household governance, or church governance, or civic, state, national, global governance, whoever is in some position of authority and governance, the practice of God-honoring governance flows from a restored relationship with God under His terms of positional authority. That's how 
prayer relates to governance, how governance relates to the gospel, relates to prayer, and so forth. The, the, the practice or the exercise of God-honoring governance, it flows from life in and under God's good economy. And so in Paul's mind, what does, what does the urgent priority of extraordinary prayer have to do with God-honoring governance? What, what does God-honoring governance have to do with the gospel? Everything. Everything. We're praying for the very outworking of the kingdom of God, the economy of God, the rule and reign of God. But what, what does that look like more specifically? <laughs> if, if we're going to put this much prayer into it, well then, what, what are we actually praying for? Look at, look at verses 1 through 3 again. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that, that, so here it is, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good that we pray. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior that we pray, who desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, so for a long time, I, I really understood, and I think most of us think this way, I, I thought of 1 Timothy 2.2 as being pretty limited, just, you know, very limited in what we were praying for here, that, that you know, is this a call to ask God, you know, that our governing officials would essentially, you know, leave us alone <laughs> and... Uh, Leave us, you know, stop bugging us so that we could live a hassle-free life. Oh, God, just bless the president, bless the governor, bless the mayor. Cause them to preserve my religious liberty. Give the legislature the wisdom to make laws such that my life is, you know, un, unencumbered, peaceful, quiet. I can be free then to live in accordance with your will. And, and, I, and it, I'm sure it includes that. Right? It includes that. All that. But, think about this. Does our ability to experience tranquility and calmness, does our ability to experience godly character, does our ability to express dignity, depend ultimately on policies, politics, or for that matter, really any circumstances outside of us. Does it? <laughs> Christ-like character and dignity a non-anxious heart really is not ultimately dependent 
on any person or any policy or any circumstance. It depends on whether God is ruling and reigning over my heart. And I'm trusting Him to assert good, wise, sound providence. So, I'm not suggesting that local, state, national governance is not of great significance in and of itself. I'm not suggesting that we ought not to pray about that and for those people. But frankly, our ability to govern our own emotional responses depends ultimately not on who sits in the throne in Pierre or in Washington, D.C., Our ability to govern our own emotional responses to trouble, to things that offend us, to people that tick us off, whatever it is, the great challenges of our vocations or marriage or parenting or life together in spiritual community, wherever it is that we are called to assert governance and and positional authority, it depends ultimately on the peace of God in Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts. I believe the way we should interpret 1 Timothy 2.2 should be more in accordance with our understanding of Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything. I mean, whenever there's something that's threatening your tranquility and calmness, In all those things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Paul, you forgot something here, intercessions, (laughs) Let, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what happens when we're anxious about something. What, what, what happens when somebody disturbs the peace of our hearts and souls? What happens when your well-being is upset? One trajectory usually goes something like this. So, you know, I'm, I'm disturbed and I feel anxious, frustrated. There's a reaction and... There's just this need to vent, so I'll go tell somebody about it. That becomes sort of a little bit of a triangle with the trouble and me, and now that got this other person involved. And then they join me in, in speaking negatively about whatever it is that has disturbed my peace, and then rehashing all this d- detail of this disturbance over and over. It just, all I've done is successfully spread that virus of my anxiety into the whole emotional system. It could be my family, it could be my spiritual community, it could be my workplace. Tranquility, calmness, godliness, dignity, diminished. The other trajectory goes something like this. There's a disturbance of the peace of my inner being. could be somebody, something, some circumstance. I I take that disturbance of my peace, my anxiety, and I pray. Earnestly pray. With supplication, intercession, and thanksgiving. And God, I take it to the God, my God, who is 
governing all things wisely and perfectly. And he listens and he reveals this truth of his good and his governing providence over all things that he can be trusted. And peace and calm begin to rise up because of the life of Jesus in me, who I'm joined to by faith. My need to vent goes down. God is honored because I've trusted all that he has promised to be for me in Christ Jesus. And the virus is contained. And the system isn't get all crazy and wacky. You see the power in this? In 1 Timothy 2.2, Paul is, he's not urging us to pray and intercede and make supplication with thanksgiving for a hassle-free life. He's urging us to implore God earnestly for everybody, starting with us, to be saved and to experience peace with Him. He's, he's calling us to pray that we would all put ourselves under the governance of God. The resolution for the troubling issues on the home front or the local church or false teachers or vain philosophies or speculative theories, all these things that undermine the truth of God's word or when the, the message of cheap grace just ends and our friends and loved ones drifting off the track towards some, you know, rocky reef of apostasy or, 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 or it could be unruly children or passive parents or the pandemic of sexual immorality, no matter what it is. Our most earnest and urgent need is the power of God. And the supply line for this power is prayer, urgent, extraordinary prayer, that all people might be saved, reconciled to God, and through the mediation of a punishment-bearing Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, come under the perfect, wise, good rule and reign of the King, eternal, immortal, the only God. Little prayer, little power. Some prayer, some power. Much prayer, extraordinary prayer, extraordinary power. There's another remarkable thing about this text, and, and that is that there have been so few Way too few occasions over the course of the past 2,000 years since this was written when the people of God have actually complied with Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. It's it just the times where, where this has been obeyed and the fruit of it manifest. Well, you can count these occasions in church history probably <laughs> I'm not sure how many hands exactly, but not many fingers. One such occasion, I, mean, I just want to give you an illustration of this as in kind of an ending way here, an ending illustration, to show you what can and has happened when people have responded to Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. One such occasion was 
during the 19th century. It was essentially the kind of the mid-1800s into the early 20th century. And during this period of time, the, the, the church um, faced uh, really probably the greatest obstacles in history up to that time. I mean, it makes, it makes the situation in, in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11 seem rather small. <laughs> but, but during the 1800s, the church faced uh, unbelievable obstacles. The, the Western world entered what Thomas Paine titled the Age of Reason. Charles Darwin developed a new scientific theory that seemed to discredit God's word. For many, the Bible was no longer revealing a holy God before whom we ought to tremble and yield and earnestly seek terms of peace on His gracious terms offered in Christ. The Bible was no longer an authoritative revelation of of the rules of God's household, but rather a quote-unquote masterful display of man's creative religious development. Even evangelists changed their message, identifying sin mostly as our failure to know God's love for us. Salvation was guaranteed to people. Guaranteed. Once saved, always saved by simply accepting it with little emphasis on repentance, holiness, godliness, or dignity. The church became this body of I've heard the term churchified people. I think that just means people who have not experienced new birth. They have not experienced regeneration. They, they basically you know, pray to prayer, but then you know, remain governed by their own flesh. And, and they diluted the gospel, lowered the churches. In, in doing that, they diluted the gospel and lowered the church's resistance to conformity to the surrounding culture. Economically, at this time, industrialization and slave labor left white churches in Europe and America just fat flush. This is the mid-1800s, right? Pre-Civil War, Civil War. Um, the churches were big but dead. The black church was full of Holy Ghost fire, but the people were physically enslaved. Globally, the inland people groups of, of the nations remained cut off from the word of the gospel and thus hellbound. And then, and then, in 1857, a businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear, he was appointed as a so-called city missionary in Manhattan. And he, he went about distributing this little handbill inviting workers in New York City to a weekly noontime prayer meeting. And on September 23rd, 1857, the door was opened for prayer, 12.30. Jeremiah Lamphere sat all by himself praying. <laughs> and, uh, and then a, one guy walks in and, and then another and another, and uh, until there were six, six guys praying. And by God's grace, a little tide pool formed. 
and flowed over and formed another little tide pool of prayer, and then another and another. And by the spring of 1858, just a few months later, it was estimated that 10,000 lay people, business people, working in Manhattan, were in a concert of daily prayer in New York City. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings were made for all people. Bent knees formed the supply lines of God's power. And what happened? Renewed love for God. Within two years of that first prayer meeting, one million converts to the Christian faith entered American churches. Two years. People got serious about their souls and sought the living Lord. The following 60 years, 1854 to 1914, testify to a church that displayed the economy of God. Church historian Kenneth Latterett titles this period of time the exceeding greatness of the power where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. A uh, newspaper man, Horace Greeley, wrote front page editorials about this movement of prayer that was sweeping through New York City and other papers picked up on the story. And, and as, as the story of the, the movement of extraordinary prayer spread, more Christians began to pray, extending the supply line. And as they prayed for renewed love, God supplied, God supplied conviction of sin and the hard but necessary sorrow that leads to repentance and a cleansed heart, joy in Jesus governance over their lives, zeal for his name, and, and the courage and compassion to, to move out, get to the front lines of gospel ministry. Second thing happened. This movement of prayer led to a reformation of truth and good works. A, a, a real reformation. It was through the supply lines of extraordinary, united prayer. It, this... Um, Revival happened in churches because lifeless preaching happening through many pastors was dramatically changed. Many brought their preaching into conformity with God's word. This anemic, lifeless, speculation-producing philosophy and theology was changed. And where it was not reformed, there was little evidence of lasting vitality or anything that could be called healthy, balanced Christianity. But, but through this conduit of prayer, God supplied all manner of transformation. Presses drafted into service by young Bible tract societies supplied biblical educational materials for home and foreign missions. The evangelistic team of William and Catherine Booth led to the formation of the Salvation Army. The same time, this just, they were just intensely evangelistic, compassionately engaged with, with prostitutes and criminals. Uh, they began to, people began to start new lives under the mercy of God's forgiveness and the power of the Spirit. Uh, a man by the name of Dwight Moody brought the 
YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, to America as the primary vehicle for urban evangelism and began training people, uh, training for the cities, passive, idle young men, just uh, winning them. Uh, Kenneth Latteret, this historian again, he writes, This praying church was the stimulus and the sustaining impulse in the successful struggle for prison reform, better care for the mentally ill, legislation for shortened hours of labor, protection of women and children in mines and industry, and obtaining improved housing. The world was changing <laughs> under the economy of God. Here's a third thing. Radical engagement in world mission. A man by the name of Hudson Taylor, maybe you've heard that name, was living in London in 1859, and as this whole tidal wave of revival came through, he began to minister among the lower classes in inner city London, but soon his, his burden just for the nation of China, the people of China, was overwhelming, and off he goes. And, and while there, he established the China Inland Mission, which over the next 50 years became, at that time, the largest mission agency in the world. I had a particular interest in, um, because we lived in Hawaii for 12 years, in 1835, fueled by this whole spiritual awakening, just as a, he, was a, he was a fruit of the, the, the revival, Second Great Awakening. A man by the name of Titus Cohen um, moved to the big island of Hawaii. And he, he writes, he found the native Hawaiian population hard as nether a millstone. I think that means that they were very unresponsive. And, and, and yet through fervent prayer and gospel preaching, the power of God becomes visible. Cohen prophesied, here's word in the spirit, right? He prophesied a, a disaster was on the horizon. And he admonished the Hawaiians to repent and turn to Jesus. And weeks after this prophecy, a tsunami rocked, shocked the city of Hilo. And, and by God's mercy, only two people were lost in that flood. But within two years, within two years, Cohen baptized over 7,000 Hawaiians and his church at that time, at that point in history, was the largest evangelical church on the planet. God did it before. He can do it again. Another thing. A restoration of holiness. This is again through the supply line formed by bent knees. Movement of prayer comes this desire for holiness and dignity. People stop shrugging off their sins and they declare war against it. They stop parading themselves around and they confess their spiritual pride and their evil ambitions and their secret lusts. And they go looking for help among the family of God. Lives undergo real lasting change. So this is during the Welsh revival now that happened in 1905, J. Edwin Orr, another historian, he report, reports that, that in the, the nation of Wales, crime dropped in half. Courtrooms emptied. And when asked how this affected the police, one sergeant replied, we have 17 policemen in our station, but we got three quartets. And if any church wants a quartet to sing, they simply call the police station. 
loved ones, I, I just want to urge you <laughs> and call you to pray for a movement of prayer. Because we just aren't going to grit our teeth and do this. God needs to supply the grace to make this happen. It has not happened many times in history, but when it has, it has been extraordinary, the fruit. And ask God to, for tide pools. Ask God to turn tide pools into a tidal wave of the Holy Spirit to just swamp us with love for God and His wise and precious governance over every aspect of our lives. I'd, I'd, ask, I'd urge you to pray for the pulpits in churches throughout Sioux Falls to be ignited and for a reformation of false doctrine and cheap grace that would be turned to gospel doctrine. And that God's word would run and be glorified. And pray for a restoration of holiness that sin and its effect would be lamented and diminished. And pray for radical investments to be made for the spread of God's economy. And pray for God's people that they would, they would forgive and restore broken relationships. The obstacles are huge. But the king reigns and he says, promises, ask and you shall receive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when it comes to the things that we see that would um, concern us and... Uh, really a, a display of, of how little your rule and your reign mean in this world. Um, it, it's overwhelming. And to, to turn within would be utter foolishness. So instead, we turn to you. We cry out to you. We cry out to you to give us what we need to comply with your word. And we're trusting that you do not make strong admonitions. You do not make strong imperatives without also supplying everything that your people need to obey. And so we are trusting you, and we are turning to you, and we're calling on you. Would, you. would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us anew and afresh? That we could be people characterized by remarkable, extraordinary prayer, which would lead to remarkable fr gospel fruit which would lead to the transformation of the world and a display of what it looks like when you are asserting your kingship, your rule, your authority in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.